I thought uh, Californians are more laid back, but you guys are more intense than our church. Uh, it's, uh, it's 7.43 now. Uh, the worship's supposed to end at 8.30, so I have about, uh, let's say, 40 minutes uh, to uh, share. So I'm just going to go rather quickly tonight. But uh, I do uh, want to read our text and just to uh, uh, share a little bit about what, I just, what I've been sharing uh, this morning and last night. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 to 12. This is a reading of God's word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted what the Lord, that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but uh, in the sight of God, uh, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus Christ. Uh, for it stands uh, in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, so the, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not uh, believe. The stone uh, that the builders uh, rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do so. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exile to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, this is the reading of God's word. Uh, it's an incredible uh, passage. Last night, I uh, shared a sermon from Ephesians chapter 3, 1 to 13, about uh, the glorious nature of the church, the mysterious community, the international community, uh, that uh, we have this togetherness in Christ. And this morning, I talked about discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower not just to be a fan of Jesus, uh, not just be a crowd, uh, and not just have Jesus as a consultant, but as the Lord and your king. And to follow him, what are the conditions of following Jesus? You do nothing. Absolutely nothing. Don't do anything. Uh, what comes after you follow Jesus? You do everything. You do everything. Now, let me give you... Uh, 
I think there's a little confusion, and uh, I always get this. Whenever I go to uh, speak at different churches, our church people understand, but whenever I go, they always uh, have this confusion, and, and, and this is no exception, that, uh, that people ask, uh, what, 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 what is this gospel? What do we have, now what do we have to do then? Uh, let, me, let me explain this gospel dynamic and, uh, and, and what uh, a systematic theologian named Sinclair Ferguson calls gospel grammar. Uh, he lays out this gospel grammar, and he talks about uh, the indicative and imperative, and that's what the gospel is all about, indicative and imperative. Uh, the Bible, especially in the New Testament epistles, are full of indicatives and imperatives. Indicative is what you have. It's the state. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a state of being or a statement. That's indicative. That's indication. And the imperatives are... For, for, for uh, if there are high school students or, or those of you who are preparing for SAT, that's, that's a commanding verb, right? That's what you're supposed to do. So it's always indicative that produces imperative. If you have imperative first and then indicative, you have what we call religion. I must do, do, do to be acceptable by God. And God will love me more if I perform, if I read my Bible, if I go to church, and if I uh, give my money to the poor, God will love me more and he'll save me. That's religion. That's just imperative. Here's the indicative. God is great. God is love. God sent his son Jesus to die for us and he sacrificed, and that's great news. Hallelujah. Wonderful. That's just indicative. If you have just that without the imperative, then you have cheap grace. So either you swing to cheap grace side and say, hey, I don't have to do anything. It's God's all love. That's cheap grace. Or you go to this side and say, but I got to perform. I got to obey. Then you have Religion, legalism. And here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is both indicative and imperative. Gospel is what Christ has done for us on, and on the basis of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we respond. Just like how God delivered the Israelites from uh, the uh, Egyptian uh, uh, enslavement. God went to Moses and said, Moses, I want you to take my people out of Egypt. And, you know, God came up and, and Moses went to Mount Sinai and there's there a, there a, a scene in, in, in Exodus where, where God says, I'm going to give you ten commandments. And when you think about ten commandments, what do you remember? You remember these ten commandments. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, no image. Third commandment, uh, do not uh, uh, dishonor God's name. Uh, fourth commandment, uh, keep the Sabbath day holy. And fifth commandment, uh, honor your parents. Uh, ten commandments. But what we fail to remember is that in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20, there's always this preamble before the Ten Commandments. And the, and the preamble is, I am your God who delivered you out of hands of slavery and out of Egypt. I am your God who delivered you. Now, therefore, you obey. 
It's not, you obey the Ten Commandments, then I will deliver you. No, that's not the way. If we mix indicative imperative, then we get religion. If we miss one, we get cheap grace. So here's what God has done for us in Christ. And out of that, what we do? Everything. Obey. Because you love. When my children were younger, you know, our youngest son, Prosper, he's, uh, he's 21 now, but uh, when he was a little kid, he was very affectionate. He's not affectionate anymore because he thinks he's too cool. But uh, he's, he was very affectionate, not, not towards me, of course, uh, because I was just mean Korean dad giving them, them you know, uh, Korean discipline. But, uh, but he was very affectionate to his mom. And said, oh, mom, I love you. You're great. You're so pretty. You're so wonderful. How come you're so beautiful? And all that stuff. And uh, Candace would always say, if you love me, you obey me. That's a direct quote from Jesus. (laughs) That's what Jesus said to his disciples. If you love me, you obey me. Because you have this love relationship with God, you obey him. You obey uh, my relationship with God is just, uh, I, I, can, I understand my relationship with God through my relationship with my wife and uh, my relationship with my sons. It's got to be that loving, cherishing, adoring relationship where I do things for my children, children do things for me. And uh, I do for my wife, and my wife does the same, and uh, it's mutual. Why? Because there is this deep-seated love. Indicative, imperative. And the passage we just read here, today, this is how Apostle uh, Apostle Peter says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. So our life as a Christian is seen through our good deeds. So to get to Jesus, you do nothing. To get to Jesus, you do nothing. Jesus will come and get you. But once you get to Jesus, what do you do? Everything. Everything. You love God. You love others. You obey. And uh, this is, that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, that's just, uh, I hope, uh, a, a group this size, I, I, I'd rather have more of an interactive kind of thing where you ask questions and I can answer. And, and, and I really enjoy Q&A sessions. And sometimes when I go to retreats, I even ask uh, the pastor or... or or the uh, person who's in charge, in this case, would be Nancy. Uh, I would ask, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, let's have a Q&A session. I, I love that kind of stuff. But, uh, but you know, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time. We, we could uh, tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning we could do that, a little bit. Now, this passage, Peter describes the church here uh, in the passage and shows us that it's the... It's that uh, the, the church's identity cannot be separated from its mission.
Peter is, is, is talking about, is describing a church, church of Jesus Christ. And the identity of a church cannot be separated from the mission of the church. In the gospel paradigm, what you are called to be inevitably and always takes you to what you are called to do. What you're called to be will take you to what you're called to do. It's sort of like indicative imperative. Uh, because of who you are, you will do. You know, because I'm a husband, because of my identity as a husband, I will do what it's befitting for a husband to do. Uh, as a father, as a pastor, uh, as a as a, a soccer player. I play soccer with Korean pastors uh, in New York. Uh, and, uh, and those of you who are interested, uh, it, it's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be probably uh, France uh, and Belgium, <laughs> I think. Uh, that's where I'm going to, but I'm going to put my money on Belgium. I think, I, that's, I mean, we, in our church we had this, Oh, no, I shouldn't say it. it, should, it no, no, no. It's unedifying. Forget it. Um, you don't know me yet, so you might, you might judge me. And uh, I want to leave uh, with good impression. Uh, but anyway, here, P Peter describes the church. That the church, church's uh, uh, identity cannot be separated from its mission. Uh, you will do what you're called to be. And there are four things that the church is called to be and to do as you start this new chapter. As you begin this new chapter, you, this, is, this is what you ought to be, and this is actually what you are, and this is what you should do. Four things. Number one, a living stone in God's temple. If you look at verses 4 and 5, it says, As you come to him, a living stone, you yourselves like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, which literally means a house of the Spirit, a temple. Jesus is a living stone, and you are built on him, and others are also built on him, Jesus. You see, Peter was given this name by Jesus, and it means rock. And here, Peter calls Jesus the real in the previous conversation uh, with, I mean, not just one previous, the previous interaction in, in, in the Bible where Jesus meets with Peter and Jesus calls Peter and says, he, was, his, he says, you're going to be Peter now. You're not going to be Simon anymore. You're going to be Peter. You're going to be called Rock. And here in First Peter, he's, he's recalling that, I think, I think he's recalling that conversation with Jesus and says, you know what? He's the real Rock. And that's what he's saying here. He's a real rock by calling him a real living stone. You know, uh, from, from the get-go, Peter is saying that Jesus is the center of this house, this temple. And, and, and I hope you can see the intensity of this image because what, what Peter is doing uh, is obviously what God is doing. This is an incredible way of intertwining our relation with God and our relationship with other Christians, our relationship in community. Every culture, every religion sensed that there was a gap between us and God. 
Every religion sense that. Every culture sense there's a gap between God and us. Uh, if you're going to experience the divine, you need a temple. Almost every culture, you need a temple. You need a priest. You need a sacrifice. You need a ritual of some sort. Of course, there are as many different forms of religion as there are cultures in this world, but that's kind of given. And Christianity comes along, and here's what's so weird about it. It says that Christians are living stones of a building. Christians are living stones. How do you build something? How do you build a building? That you have stones upon stone, upon stone, upon stone, and then you cement it. You have to put the stones in the right place, and they fit together. And then you cement them together. And Peter says that's how you experience God now. You don't put brick upon brick. You put people upon people. That's the temple of God. Uh, You are a temple of God. That you put one another on each other. And you come together. And you're connected to the chief cornerstone. And that's how you are, a temple. And also, you're, second, you're a holy nation. I'm going to move rather quickly here. The purpose of Christian community is not just nice feelings, feelings of being around other people. It's good. It's always good. It's always encouraging. But it's to forge something. Here's what we see. We're here to forge a distinct counterculture. We are to be holy nation. A holy nation. That's what the Apostle Peter is saying here. We're built into a holy nation. Our relationships are to create a holy nation. What does that mean? One thing that's very interesting about the word nation is the word ethnos or ethnic. Peter is writing to multi-ethnic cities and multi-ethnic churches. Peter is writing, therefore, to churches filled with people who are both Greek, Roman, African, Jewish, all the different groups, yet Peter has the audacity to say, you are wholly ethnic, which means distinct. You're wholly ethnic. What are we doing in our intentional relationships? What do you do when you get together? What do you do when you get together as a church? Uh, We're actually supposed to be comprehensively thinking uh, and rethinking every single part of our lives together, asking, what are the implications of the gospel in the area of my life? Whether it's your business life, whether it's your sex life, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your civil life, your political life, your intellectual life, your aesthetic life, your financial life, everything. What are the implications of the gospel? What does it mean to be a holy nation? What's it mean to be a believer and disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you ask that question when you get together? For young people, high school students, what's it mean to be a follower of Jesus when the peer pressure is so daunting? What's it mean to be, to be, for younger people and for, for, for 
single people or, or married people. What's it mean to be sexually holy, distinct culture? Where it's all blurry now. What's it mean to be distinct? Holy means distinct, different. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you in your marriage? How, are, how is your marriage different from others? How do you reconcile? How do you discipline your children? How do you love one another? How do you have sex? How do you enjoy God through your intimacy? I always say, if you can't worship God in your marriage intimacy, something's wrong. How do you enjoy God and say, thank you, Lord, for this great intimacy I have with my spouse? How, do you, how are you different in the way you use your money? A holy nation. It's not just doing things for church. It's how you live, how you spend your money. I'm sure it's the same way for, for you all. It's, it's, it's like in New York, two most precious, precious commodities that we have, time and money. Time and money, that's it. Everyone's busy in New York. Somehow everyone's busy. And money is our idol in New York City. You know, there's, there's a saying, one sociologist says, in Boston, the question you ask is, you know, how much do you know? You know what information, what kind of education do you have? Uh, in Philadelphia, the, uh, the question people ask is, who do you know? It's all, it's all about network, connection, you know, friendship. In New York, the question is, how much do you make? That's our idol in our city. I don't know about your region. I don't know. But how do you spend your money? I'm going to talk about that tomorrow morning. How do you spend your time? Holy nation. How are you distinct? in your political understanding. How are you distinct as a citizen? How are you distinct as a member of your community in your neighborhood? How are you distinct? A holy nation. Holy. That's who you are. That's what Christians are. That's what a church is. And now, you have to live a life that is consistent with your identity. Right? You don't perform so that you, so that you can be somebody. No. The gospel paradigm is you are somebody, so you perform. It's indicative imperative. It's being and doing. So you're a holy nation. How are you different? The problem with a lot of Christians is this. I'm, I'm included in this conversation. The problem that I have, a lot of Christians, that the things that we ought to be different from the world were very similar, and things we are to be similar with the world were very different. 
That's the inconsistency we have. The important things, the real things that, are, that we ought to be different, that we ought to be distinct. About money, about sex, about honoring God. It's the same. We have same values, same aspiration, same thing. But things that we ought to be very similar to our non-Christian neighbors were different. We only eat Christian cheeseburgers. We only use Christian pen, Christian songs. So easy. So easy to be Christian. How can we come together as a community? How can you come together as a community and comprehensively think about the implications of the gospel in every single part of your life? Can somebody ask you those questions? In church? A big word in our church today these days is accountability. That's a big word, accountability. I preached a sermon on internet pornography once. And uh, after, ser- after that sermon, a couple guys came to me and said, Pastor, I really have issues with internet pornography. Can you keep me accountable? What, what you want me to call you, ask you, like, whenever I meet you, ask you questions? Is that, is that what you mean? What, what do you mean? Uh, you're going to have a program where every site you visit, it's, that's going to be emailed to me, like a program called Covenant, Covenant Eyes. Uh, there's my assistant pastor who used to have that program, and, and every site he visits on the Internet, everything would come to me every other week or, or weekly basis, and I get to see all the sites that he visits. Is that what accountability is? I, I mean, I don't have... To. I don't want to do that. I'm not really interested in that. But I can ask you. I can ask you questions. In our men's ministry, one of our guys in our WhatsApp, you know, WhatsApp uh, messaging thingy, uh, he puts up a, a text that says, uh, my wife is leaving for a business trip for, for four days. I might fail, so I need you guys. So we bombarded him with text, like every three hours. You better not be doing anything shady now. (laughs) It's like 11 o'clock. What are you doing? (laughs) And uh, and, and he shared the victory of overcoming, the joy of, 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 of overcoming the temptation. And he shared that. How are you distinct as a church? Can somebody come to you and ask you those questions? I go to my elders and deacons, and I go to my church members all the time, and I, I, I just straight out ask them, how's your marriage? From one to five, five being the greatest, one being the poorest, greater marriage. I often ask them. And maybe that's why I'm always sitting by myself at church. No one wants to come near me. 
I'm constantly asking. I'm constantly asking questions. How do we resolve fights? Because I'm interested. How are you different? You're a holy nation. How are you showing it? This is who you are. How are you showing it? You're a temple. You're a holy nation. And third, oh, I got to move fast. It's already 8-11. Yo, what's up? All right. Uh, number three, royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Priestly ministry is a servant ministry. That means we're about creating a culture different than any other culture. Because basically, the culture in, in, in our world, in our Western world, or, or in New York, is basically based on power. It's basically based on power. But the Christian culture is a culture based on service. When Peter uses this word, your royal priesthood, it's an oxymoron. It's like jumble shrimp. Royal and priest. The first century readers, when they read this, they're like, what? Royal? Royalty and, 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 and priest? They don't go together. Royal king makes sense. But royal priest doesn't make sense at all. Now, you're used to hearing this all the time, and you don't raise questions. But the first century readers, royal priest is an oxymoron. In almost every culture, especially in Israel, priests and kings were two different creatures. A priest stood with his back to you in a temple. Why? He was representing people before the divine. He was representing you before God, a priest. A priest, the priests were the ones who gave the offering to uh, offering because they, they were the ones who worked for the poor. They represented people, especially they represented the poor. Royal priesthood. Before, we were common priesthood. But now, you are a royal priesthood. You represent the sick, the hurting, the poor, and you bring them to God for healing and restoration. That's who you are. That's your church. How do you serve the poor in your neighborhood? My urban missions professor, when he was in seminary, uh, maybe Joe, no, Manny Ortiz, he, uh, he used to say this. He says, uh, remember when, when, when this woman like, came and, and gave this expensive perfume to Jesus and poured it on his feet and, and, and washing, and, and, and the disciples got all mad, and they were like, hey, yo, what's, what's going on here? You could have sold this and, 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 and helped the poor. And Jesus says something very weird. He says, the poor you will always have. Now, this is a little twist. Of course, this is not uh, proper exegesis, but, but this is what Manny Ortiz says in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sarcastic way, and I loved it. 
because I love sarcasm. I love it. I just love it. That's why I love David Letterman, and, and, and I love uh, all these folks. And, and this is what he says. The poor you will always have. You know why? Because the rich will always exploit them. The rich you will always have. And the rich will always exploit. My biggest, one of the biggest burdens as a pastor in my church is that my church folks are pretty well off. They're first generation Chinese parents and Korean parents work their butt off to send them to good schools and they're pretty well off. But we still have poor people in our neighborhood. Your royal priesthood, that's who you are. That's who you are, royal priesthood. You represent people. Number four, a people for God's own possession. You're a chosen people. Chosen people are people who say, the only reason I'm a Christian today is not because of what I've done, not because I chose to be good, or I chose to uh, uh, have moral attainments, I chose to go to church, I chose to be a moral person. No. Uh, here's what the gospel says. The only reason you're a Christian today is, first of all, when you didn't even know you needed it, God sent his son to suffer for you and die for you, even, even before you knew you needed it. When you're not after it, you didn't even think you needed it. You weren't going after it. God sent his holy son. God sent his holy spirit to knock on your door of your heart. And that's what it means. You are people belonging to God, chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation. People belong to him. But this uh, statement, people belong to him, I, I, it doesn't, this translation doesn't do justice. I think better translation is a people treasured. That's a better translation. You are a people treasured. When, you know, we, we have our mercy and justice ministry. We have a lot of our deacons involved in mercy and justice, and, and we try to serve people in our neighborhood and in our city. But, but I think too many times, and, and I do this most often, that uh, I'm going out there to help the poor, but I just make myself feel valuable thinking I've done something good. And I'm not serving the poor, I'm just using the poor. What about you? What about your church? How do you serve the poor? Or I hope you're not using the poor. To just look like you're doing something. and interpersonal relationships. If you're the kind of person who can't say no and has no boundaries, 
and feel like you, uh, you have to please everybody. And you're always thinking. You're like, oh, I can't say no, so I got to do this. Oh, gosh. Susan asked me, that, oh, I got to do this. Young asked me, oh, I got to do this. Frank asked me, oh, I got to do this. Or, 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 or whoever. Nancy asked me to do this, and I got to do this. Whatever. You know? And you're like always thinking. And you're not really loving that person. You're not being a loving person. I think this is what you need. I, and and, and I, I meditate on this for a long time because I'm a pleaser. My biggest idol. I don't have to share too much. Uh, you're not interested in me. Uh, but I'm a pleaser. I love... I love it when people like me. So I, I try not to have people, that's why I try to offend people, you know, intentionally. <laughs> but you need this amazing humility which comes from, from knowing that you're, you're chosen, you're a treasured person, that God treasures you, that, that, that finally gives you this freedom to be honest with yourself, and, and, and be comfortable with who you are. You see? That you're so absolutely treasured that you're comfortable with who you are. You're okay with yourself. And I'm absolutely treasured. Whoever I treasure the most, that person's opinion matters the most. In my case, it's Candace. Thousands of people can be against me. If Candace says, you're all right, then I know I'm all right. I know I'm all right. Hundreds of people can, can come to me and say, Pastor, you're great. You're awesome. You're wonderful. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then Candace often says, after my sermon, on our way to a Korean congregation, we have to drive 20 minutes for me to go there and preach again. And on the way... She always has to say something. <laughs> Last time she said, I think you should prepare your sermon more. And I said, okay. One time she said, you had three points, but after the second point, you lost everybody. The most hurting one, she said, you just wasted a bunch of people's time. <laughs> but I am so treasured by God. <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, that, I, that I understand that I'm treasured by God, that, that her statement only hurts for half a day, and I can get over it after half a day. If I didn't know that God treasured me, they would last a couple days, and I would hate on her, and I would create things to criticize her too. <laughs> I, always, I always pay back. <laughs> you see, 
you're, you understand you're absolutely treasured, so you don't have to please everyone. You, have, you can have healthy boundaries. And you can actually say no. I'm speaking to people who are like me. Because I can't say no. Because I like to please people. But now I'm learning. Because I know when I, when I just say yes to everything people say, I'm not really being a loving person. I'm, I'm, I'm using them so that they can like me. And I give compliments all the time. I used to give compliments all the time. I still do. And you know why? You know why? Because if you compliment them, they'll like you. That's how you get people to like you. Compliment them. So I compliment our church people all the time. Now, I don't. Because I know I don't want to use them. I love them too much. So I tell them like it is. And uh, in a loving way, of course, speaking the truth in love. You can now actually look outside of yourself. And as a result, you actually move out in service and everything becomes service to others. That is, that is a, a, the biggest uh, characteristic of a Christian, I think, service. And I did premarital counseling, and I did marriage counseling, and I said, how do you love your spouse through your intimacy? And I said, intimacy as a service? Absolutely, you're serving one another. You're called to serve. How do you serve your wife? How do you serve your husband? Because we don't know how to connect the gospel to every part of life. It becomes power struggle. It becomes power game. You're trying to dominate. Usually guys try to dominate. Usually wives try to manipulate. And there's this domination, manipulation going on all the time. No wonder you're not happy in marriage. No wonder you're constantly thinking about, ah, now, how am I going to win this? But what about, I'm here to serve my spouse. How can I serve my wife? And, and that thought intensified three weeks ago when I saw my wedding album, how beautiful she was uh, 28 years ago when she married me. But how do you serve? You can now actually look outside of yourself and stop feeling sorry for yourself and have power to serve other people. And, and Jesus demonstrated this balance perfectly, you see. He was absolutely humble. He knew that he was the son of God. He didn't need anything else in this world, such as power, money, fame, to define his identity. He was absolutely free. He knew that he was treasured by his father. Jesus Christ. He came, lived 30 years as a carpenter, carpenter's son. He goes to John, gets baptized, comes out of water, spirit like dove, and hears a voice coming from heaven. You are my son whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. You're my son, I am so pleased with you. And I'm reading this text and I'm like, the heck, Jesus didn't even do one miracle yet. He didn't raise the dead. He didn't see 5,000 people. He didn't do anything, but he was treasured. Why? Because he was God's son. This is who you are. God doesn't treasure you through because, because of your performance. God treasures you because you are 
a treasured one. You're a chosen one. You're treasured. You're his children. You're his child. You're his daughter. You're his son. He treasures you. And you can be absolutely free like Jesus. And he knew that he was really loved by his father. When I do marriage counseling, I always, I always use this verse. I, this is my one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Genesis 2.25. I'm sure that, you know, you, you're not going to just remember, you know. But uh, Genesis 25 says this, 2.25. Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and Eve, they were both naked, but felt no shame. I use that passage all the time when I do marriage, a uh, wedding ceremony. Adam and Eve, they're both naked, felt no shame. I said, when I do marriage counseling, this is where you want to be. This is where you want to be. You want to be naked before your spouse, and you'll feel no shame. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, intellectually, just be naked. And no shame, because there's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There's just acceptance. That's where we want to be. And that's how it is with God and his children. Jesus was stripped naked on the cross so that we can have this acceptance by God. Jesus is rejected so that we can be treasured. Jesus was so treasured by his Father, he just served us to the point of death. Now we can have this freedom and power. You are a holy nation, chosen people, royal priesthood, God's own treasured possession. This is who you are. Now, for what purpose? And I'll close with this. I'm going to go over five minutes. The purpose of the church is a declaration of the glory of God. At the end of verse 9, what is all this? Verse 9. But you're chosen, that, here's a purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm doing this for you. What's it about? Why did God make us living stone, holy nation, royal priesthood, a people treasured? Why? That you may declare the praises, the excellencies, the beauties of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So that you can declare. So you can say, look, look at me. And you yourself is a declaration. You as a community is a declaration of God's excellence. How wonderful he is. How beautiful he is. How marvelous he is. One time Tim Keller preached a sermon and then that stuck to me and I've been thinking about this for many, many years. And he asked this question. And I use this line in my church and, and every time I preach and I think about this and I think about this often in my own reflection meditation. Is Jesus useful or beautiful? And I have to wrestle with that question almost every morning. Is Jesus useful or beautiful? 
Is he beautiful to you? Is he beautiful or is he useful? There are times he's more useful than beautiful. But he's beautiful. Rabbi Zacharias, the preacher and teacher, he uh, used to say, he says, the older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. And he says, if you take a five-year-old to zoo and you say, look, a bear, they gasp and filled with wonder. A bear, wow, whoa, look, daddy, look, mommy, a bear. If you take a 25-year-old to zoo and say, look, a bear, <laughs> they say, we're in a zoo, duh. <laughs> the older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. It does. It's the same way with me. I'm getting older. I was talking to my wife this, today, too, and I said, you know, <laughs> I have this arthritis here, and da getting old, and, and uh, as I'm getting older, there are two things are increasing in my life and my attitude. Regrets and annoyance. And, man, I get so annoyed by everything. My kids annoy me. Sometimes, you know, when your son talks to you, isn't that great when you're a grown son, like, like adult son, like he talks to you and tells you about his life? I get so annoyed. I, say, I almost want to say, stop talking. You know when your college son calls you and texts you 2 o'clock in the morning and, and, and says, Papa, what do I do in this situation? Isn't that great? Do you want to give advice? And I said, I texted back, don't you have friends? <laughs> You're asking me. The older I get, I get so annoyed about everything. And so I must repent. Of course I must repent. And then, equally... I'm increasing my regrets. I regret everything. I look at my children. And I'm like, oh, gosh. He was talking to me. I should have paid attention. I should care for them more. I should care for my church. I should care for my mother. I should care for my brothers. I should do more. And there are always regrets. The older we get, it's harder to fill your heart with wonder. And that's the reason why the purpose of the church and the purpose of every person who calls himself herself, herself and himself Christian is to declare the beauties, to praise the one who calls us out of darkness into marvelous light. My heart gets warmed when I see others seeing the beauty of Jesus and declaring the beauty of Jesus Christ. My heart gets warm. When I'm alone, I just get annoyed. <laughs> I get annoyed my QT book. This is all they could write? Oh, gosh. I get annoyed. And then I read my journal, and I'm like, this is it? Oh, gosh, I should do more. And I get annoyed by myself. I get annoyed with everyone. But when I hear you, when I see you, my heart gets warm. Does that happen to you, too? That's why we're called to declare the praise of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, what does that mean for you, Revival Presbyterian Church? What does that mean for you? 
Let others see the glory and beauty of Jesus through your life in this church. Others. Let others see you. One sure way to show that is to have a visible presence in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, in your home. The identity will lend itself to its mission. You as a church are supposed to shine. A light supposed to shine. It's not shining. It ain't light. Your church, you're supposed to be visible. And you have a great opportunity as you start this new chapter to be visible. Would your friends, your neighbors, people that you interact with, would they be really glad because of your church? And I ask this question all the time. If our church closed down its doors now, would our neighbors miss us? Sometimes I don't want to hear, a couple of our church people will say, they don't even know we're here. God gave you this great opportunity to shine the light of the wonder of the gospel in your city. And as you start this new chapter. And I hope you can really think about this in your, in your small group discussion. Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. If the city prospers, the righteous will rejoice. And let your city prosper because of you, because of your presence. Uh, let, me, let me close in prayer. And hopefully you can have a, a good uh, group discussion. Uh, Father, we thank you for our time together. As Revive Presbyterian Church helped them to know their identity and mission. And, and, and through their small group discussion, help them to really know what it means to be your church in their city in this time. So bless them, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.